have an all too short sentence for all that here this in this room or on this tape simply to say that I am most grateful for the cards, the letters, the packages, the phone calls, the help, and most most importantly the prayers on my behalf this summer, all of which have been appreciated and felt. We have an hour to talk about spiritism. It's too short. In essence, what we'd like to do is talk a little bit about the origin of demons. We would like to talk about how they functioned prior to the flood. We would like to talk about how they function after the flood. And we would like to talk about when their judgment occurs. And we would like to talk about what we can expect from them in the near future. That is roughly our agenda. We do not have specific questions. Uh, in actuality, what I just read to you is the outline that all of these brethren received. So it's a very open-ended kind of panel. So I will simply start by asking, what do we know about the origin of devils? Uh, when does Lucifer become Satan? Um, there are a lot of terms we use. How scriptural are they? Do we have to differentiate between devils and demons and ghosts and fallen angels? Or do they all just sort of fit together? Who'd like to uh, begin our discussion? Larry. Well, as to the origin of devils, of course, we know the origin. We know that uh, that old serpent, the devil, that's found in the garden. I mean, that's a clear origin as far as his earthly activity is concerned. But the word devils is only mentioned four times in the Old Testament. And the first one is found in Leviticus. And in Leviticus, it is advising, it is a no longer uh, worship devils. You're no longer to worship devils. And we're to look, or looking up in the, uh, in Strong's, and looking at other translations, it really means goat demon. No longer worship. Apparently, when they came out of Egypt, they brought with them a great many of the ideas and the worship of idols and the worship of demons, as we saw as creating a golden calf. And here they, but they were also worshiping this goat god, which was really, in mythology, Pan. And Pan was the, uh, a goat god in Egypt. And incidentally, uh, I think the insult, the really the insult to God, is not only we start off with a serpent in the picture of the garden as uh, uh, representing the devil, but in the minds of men, animals took the place of gods as sort of an insult to God. You know, you, you're so high, well, I'm going to have them worship animals. Worship animals. And then one of them was the goat god, uh, uh, Pan. By the way, if we were to give uh, any credence to the uh, two Babylonist book, Pan was really based on Adam because Pan really means one who turns aside, one who goes astray, out of the way. And so going back to Adam, of course Adam had nothing to do with this god Pan, I mean it wasn't, but they simply picked up on that possibly. And so he was, he was a, a derivative of Adam, one who goes aside. 
And of course, they made, they made gods out of Noah. Uh, Dagon was a god, and that was based, uh, based upon Noah. So the origin of gods originally was, and there was, and by the way, devils is only used four times in the Old Testament. And they're always in the plurals, never in the singular. And so the uh, original origin, where we have the first account of devils, we are told that these, uh, that this particular one, they're not all pan, by the way. Some of them are old classic devils uh, uh, that are the, uh, 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 the opposers and so, this sort of thing. But, when it, but the first one mentioned, it was based upon an Egyptian god. And it's quite appropriate that uh, it follows, at least, not appropriate, but at least it follows that they started with a serpent, and now they're worshipping other animals. Because these animals did picture other higher deities. And I'd add to it, of course, all of this comes back to before the flood, when, the, uh, when we had the Nephilim, and we had giants, and men of renown. And a lot of the characteristics of these gods were based on, on these characteristics which were handed down. Thank you. Others? Carl? We know enough about demons to be enticed into speculation. We know too little about the demons to be totally authoritative. And so it puts us in a unique position where most of what we have is a conjecture based upon scriptural evidence. And I think the evidence is strong enough to make some very logical conjecture. I think we can safely say that demons and Satan were not created by God. God created angels. They became demons. They became Satan. But they were not created with that characteristic. It is not described their physical, but their moral character. We know we have a tantalizing tidbit in Revelation 20 where we know that Satan has four names. He is Satan. He is uh, the dragon. He is the devil, and he is the serpent. And I think each of those four names are very significant because they describe different aspects of satanic power. Under Satan, we see him as the great adversary, the accuser. As the devil, we see him not so much in that role, but more in the role of the, uh, the one who creates scandal, the one who uh, caricatures justice, he's opposite of justice just as Satan is the opposite of love. In the dragon, we see his operation in civil power, but we also see him in an intimidating feature, intimidation which are the opposite of love. And in the serpent, we see the subtleness of Satan. We see the deceptive power, which is the opposite of God's attribute of uh, uh, wisdom. So he characterizes God. He's the opposite of what God is. Okay, so Stephen, anything to add? Yeah, um... <clears throat> One of the things that came to my mind as I was thinking about this was those who are so-called spiritualists, and we use that term not in our context of what it means to be spiritually inclined, but in the context of what the world or even some in nominalism would term as spiritualism. The whole premise of spiritualism is based on what Brother Ken mentioned this morning, the original lie, thou shalt not surely die. And, and the reason we bring this up is it, it, it presents to us what the, the incorrect uh, thought of is as the origin of these devils or evil spirits. Uh, you know, the claim is that, well, when a person dies, really it's only the body that 
that or the outer shell that ceases to exist. The, the real person or the soul, as, as, as it is termed, continues to live. And the thought is that, well, this soul can communicate with friends or relatives or other people that are still occupying a fleshly body. And some of these souls might be good souls and some might be evil souls. And the ones that are the evil souls are the ones that, that are uh, termed as the evil spirits. Uh, we know, of course, from our understanding of the scriptures that when someone dies, they actually are dead. And we can, you know, we can quote the scriptures that, uh, that uh, mention that uh, the dead know not anything, Ecclesiastes 9.5. Uh, so, you know, as we're thinking about the origin of devils, we have, to, we have to put it in the perspective of not only what it is, but what it is not. And so many that, that have this, this thought of spiritism or spiritualism the whole basis of their concept of this is on this false doctrine which Satan himself began or started of that thou shalt not surely die. And uh, so if, if this is not correct, then there has to be some other explanation for the origin of devils. And as, as what has already been said, there, I think it really boils down to the fact that they are the angels which kept not their first estate. Uh, which is in Jude 6, and I'm sure we'll get back to that a little later. Uh, the spirit of devils working miracles in Revelation 16:14. Uh, Satan himself is called the prince of devils in uh, uh, Matthew 9:34. Uh, so, you know, the devils are not the spirits of dead human beings. They are actual uh, spirit beings which have fallen from a condition of favor with God to a condition of disfavor with God through disobedience, through desiring, as Satan did, to be like God, to sit, uh, uh, be at the most, uh, be like the Most High. That's how it's recorded in Isaiah, uh, the 14th chapter. And uh, I think we'll just stop for there. Okay. I, I still have two questions based on things that you have said and have not said in this category. Let me, let me give you both questions and I'll reopen it for discussion here. Uh, are we safe in using, uh, excluding the devil himself, Satan himself, are we safe pretty much in using interchangeably terms like devil, demon, ghosts, fallen angels, and so on? That's question number one. And question number two is, is Satan in a different category? Or we just throw him in with all other demons? Call. Question two is easy. He's a different category. He's the prince of demons. I like the title given to him in the 41st chapter of Job. He is the father of all the children of pride. I think that's a, a very good descriptive title of him. Uh, as to the other terms, I use them interchangeably. Maybe I'm wrong. I do too. That's why I'm asking for criticism here. Uh, Harry, I think, is next in the Brother Stephen. Go ahead, Harry. No. Oh. Well, no, I think in, in using these various terms, some of them are defining what in, certain individuals do. For instance, we're talking about ghosts. If you say a ghost, well, they're going to think you're talking about someone who was once alive and is now dead and has come, his soul has come back to haunt. So we know that this would, Satan would like you to believe there is ghosts, but in reality, there aren't any ghosts. I mean, there's the Holy Ghost. There are, there are terms in the scriptures using ghosts. But the point is, the idea of a ghost 
the idea in the popular mind at least, is one who, uh, who is formerly a human being, and that would be an improper term. But today we have all sorts of terms. Today we have channelers, which, uh, which is a new age term for a medium, which is a, a, a more uh, contemporary term for a, a necromancer. So, uh, but nevertheless, we have to be a little careful with the terms because we might be promoting an idea such as the word ghost in the, in the mind uh, uh, that this was once a, a, a human being. I don't think of the movie Casper the Friendly Ghost that he was ever a human being, but maybe he was, I don't know. But I, I think it's, uh, you, if you use the term ghost, you should clarify it. Okay, so it, it maybe then the, the harmonization here is among ourselves we interchange the terms freely, but in witnessing we must not because there is distinction in the mind of people out there in the world. Brother Stephen. Well, I think the scriptures even make a distinction as far as ghosts, the, the use of the word ghost in, in the King James Version. I think devils, demon, uh, demon is found in the King James, but the word devils in, in the Greek in the New Testament is the word same demon in, if you go back into the Greek. And, and the term fallen angels, which also is not a scriptural term, we, we use the term and we, we kind of derive it from, from Jude, the sixth verse, and also Second Peter. Uh, but the word ghost, uh, in the Old Testament, I, would, I just did a little research on this, in the Old Testament the word ghost is used about 11 times, and in every case it's with the phrase, gave up the ghost, uh, which is, is really, it's talking about death the giving up of the spirit, giving up of the breath of life. It's talking about uh, those who were uh, those who were alive and have died. There's nothing at all to do with, you know, some mysterious uh, being or soul of one that was living who now their body has died and their soul continues to live. And the same is really true in the New Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, the word ghost appears in our King James Bible uh, about a hundred times, roughly, give or take a little bit. Uh, and most of those, it is used in the context of holy ghost or holy spirit, and it's the word pneuma, and it means a current of air or breeze. Uh, and and if you carry it further, it really has to do with the mental disposition, the influence of God. There's nothing at all to do with this this ethereal concept of a, of a soul of a of a dead person having some form or some power. So uh, and. So, and I don't think ghost, as it's used in the King James, really, uh, which is a bad translation, uh, really is in reference, or used in reference to devils or demons. It's usually used in reference to the Holy Spirit uh, in, re in regard to how it's used uh, uh, in, in the New Testament. I concur completely, but there is an incident in the New Testament when Peter was in chains and he was released by the angels. And here they were praying together in this home. And Peter went to the home, and a young person came to the door, and they couldn't believe it was Peter. And they said, Peter's ghost is here. Well, that doesn't mean that that establishes that there are ghosts. It just established that individual didn't understand uh, the nature of death yet. And, uh, but it was referred to as Peter's ghost. But they were all in a learning process. These were all really babes in the truth and uh, to a great extent. And so that term was used in relation to Peter coming to the house. Carl? I'd like to set a rest here. I think of the popular misconception 
there's been quite a solidated debate over the last hundred years as to whether the Jewish community at the First Advent believed in the immortal soul. And this has really been raised in recent years because probably the most decisive work on the topic is Dr. Fromm, who does not believe in the soul, his four-bombic position of the conditionless faith for our fathers. And in there he mentioned the Jewish community did believe in the immortal soul. I just recently read a rebuttal of that article, and I thought it was extremely good. The, arg the argument of that belief is based on four pillars, each of which is quickly proved false, I think. Its main pillar is Josephus, and Josephus is not an authority to prove anything. Josephus had an agenda, and that agenda has got to be kept in mind in reading Josephus. You have three scriptural bases. One is the one Brother um, Harry just mentioned. And I would suggest a little different thought than Brother Harry was mentioning of, of the growth. The word there is angel. It is an angel. And angels are used both in human and spiritual things. There are fallen angels, yes. But it's also used in human. I would, I would suggest that, no, it is not him. It is a messenger from him that he is said to inform us of this condition. Not that he's talking about it being a spiritual being at all. But it's his messenger, one of the two sent to us to inform us of this. A second scripture that is used is when Jesus walked in water. One of them said, it is a spirit. There I think it's used more in the thought, it is a uh, vision. It's not using it that Jesus was all of a sudden transformed into a spirit. But it's an apparition. It's not really Jesus. You think you've seen Jesus. And of course the fourth one is the parable of the rich man Lazarus. And to me the definitive answer on that is the fact that it is directly connected with Deuteronomy 32 as an explanation of Deuteronomy 32. It is not talking about any kind of flames in actual hell, but it's talking about a fire of destruction that Deuteronomy 32 is what existed in Sheol as well. I'm going to move on with uh, the simple statement here in, in summary that I think the origin of devils is the moral defection of spirit beings. I think that's been said, maybe not in those words, but at the point that certain spirit beings had a moral defection, we have the institution of the existence of Satan and devils. All right, uh, what are the nature or the activity or the limitations of fallen angels prior to the flood? Carl, you look like you're ready to say something. Well, there are certain things I think we know here. And there are a lot of questions that raise us. There seems to be a little room for question, some, but very little room for question, that they took on human form and intermarried with the daughters of men. And that the children produced by this were unusually strong, unusually virile, and perhaps there had been no evidence of their dying before the flood. That is not a, a, a positive, but I think that's a reasonable assumption. Uh, how they did this is a matter of gross speculation. Uh, as you speculate into it, you get into unanswerable questions. Uh, is there angelic sperm? Uh, can an angel create life? Can they create a living sperm? All of these questions that are there that I, I find, at the end, unprofitable. It isn't so much how, it's the fact that they did. And the fact that a flood was needed to, to erase it. Uh, that fact may or may not relate to the ability of hybrids to reproduce. Uh, if they couldn't reproduce, they just eventually die out. 
unless they were something that did not die, uh, then there was a reproduction that had to be stopped. But usually, in the general nature of things, hybrids do not reproduce. And I think the argument is fairly solid that they produce a non-reproducible seed. Okay, uh, skip the seed for a moment. I'll still ask Carl this, then the others can jump in. Forget the offspring. I want to know about the angels. Did they have any limitations in their activities prior to the flood that you know of? Well, certainly one they had. Because I think the picture of the satanic activity in the first picture, first chapter, Joel. And he was permitted to cause affliction and trouble. He was not permitted to harm the plan for Job himself. They could not harm the plan for God upon man. They could not touch that. Uh, they were limited, it was seen by Peter, uh, to the atmosphere of the earth and that activity. They could not go out and create additional spirit beings uh, who were false. They could entice others to follow their path, but they could not produce some kind of reproducible spiritual nature. Their act that activity was an earth-limited activity. Okay, Brother Stephen or Brother... Yeah, yeah uh, we know that they were only permitted, and this was, would be a limitation, they were only permitted to interfere uh, for a limited period of time. And because we know that, you know, it was, it was cut short by the flood. In fact, I think, you know, we could probably spend a lot of time on Genesis 6-3 where, where uh, God says, I will not always strive with man, uh, and his days shall be 120 years. Now, there's, you know, there can be different thoughts on what that 120 years uh, had reference to, but one thought is that when God was stating that, he was giving a, a deadline uh, as to how long these angels would have this authority to uh, materialize and take on human wives and produce this uh, hybrid illegitimate race of, of people. So, uh, But uh, regardless of whether that 120 fits in there, it was definitely limited because the flood uh, did come at uh, the appropriate time and, and took care of the situation. And I think another limitation was uh, that they were not allowed to pollute the entire human family. Uh, there were eight, uh, Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives that were not polluted uh, by, uh, by, these, uh, by these angels. And uh, so I think those are two limitations. Uh, they were not limited as evidently as to their ability to materialize at that time, whereas, as we'll get to later, they were limited in that capacity, but uh, they were not limited in that now. So those would be a couple other thoughts, I think. Thank you. Well, a major limitation to the angels at that time was the flood. God <laughs> limited them with the flood. But nevertheless, they did take of wives all that they chose. Now, that doesn't mean... But to take wives of all you choose it does not mean necessarily the wives were willing or unwilling. Uh, they did not have the ability, I don't think, nor do they ever have the ability to take uh, man's free will. And the free will, I think, remained intact. But, but there was simply, and if you uh, kidnap a person because you've kidnapped them, it doesn't mean you kidnap their will. They still have a free will, but they're now in bondage. And I think taking wives of whoever they wished was more or less, uh, I suspect a great many women were very impressed with these beautiful beings and probably responded very favorably to them. But nevertheless, I don't think they could take the free will. 
and and the flood itself shows of course this whole thing this whole you see we're talking about keeping satan's lie alive thou shalt not surely die but there's another factor in this the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head and the serpent shall bruise the heel of the woman and with this intermarrying yes they may have tried to create a new race but they were also trying to destroy the seed of the woman the seed of promise satan got a death sentence he knew he was going to be bruised in his head and this is going to be fatal and so the first step of satan was to try to offset this promise by uh, by by off by destroying the seed any way he can we saw he tried to do it again with uh, moses in with the slaughter of the babies we saw it again he tried to do it with the slaughter of the children when our lord was here who was born we saw it we see it again that when he tried to wipe out the, uh, the jewish nation he saw in them part, part of the earthly seed and so he went after them he has been always after this to do offset this this curse upon satan that i will bruise the serpent's head and then again in revelation he will go after the remnants of her seed he's going to try it again but nevertheless this is one of the reasons and i don't believe they necessarily these uh, fallen angels and he's right that's not a scriptural term angels that kept not their first estate uh were necessarily aware of what satan's plans were i think they were more or less in may have influenced satan but even though he cuz satan is not mentioned in this whatsoever but his fingerprints are all over it because this is this is working to his advantage satan appears later on in a more direct way but in in this situation they were playing into satan's hands thinking they may be saving the human race I also think they had lack of confidence in God. They saw Cain kill Abel, and he gets what does Cain get? He gets a slap on the wrist. He's told, "Well, in Cain, well, you know, I'll be uh, anybody who sees me, they'll kill me." Well, obviously, there must have been some laws back there for them to want to kill uh, Cain. There must have been a, a, a sense of uh, law going on. But uh, but nevertheless, the, the Lord gives them a mark, and the uh, and it looks like. well you can get away with murder Cain is being protected and and uh, and so and then the long life of Adam and seeing all these things i think it gave these angels a false sense of security but i do not think they can interfere with the free will they can deceive it but they can uh, unless you give it to them but that's another part of our discussion all right let's cross the flood <clears throat> i'd like to know scripturally what uh, restraints were put on these spirits after the flood uh what's the nature or the characteristics of their behaviors and powers since the flood and is there and if so what any difference between their activities in the jewish or the gospel ages attack all or part of that whoever is ready for it well harry well one part of it there was in my opinion one major difference between the jewish age and the gospel age in relation to to satanic power when our lord came he cast out demons there was no casting out demons that i know of in the old testament they apparently there was a change of the operation of the fallen angels and uh, i suspect this is when they were starting they couldn't materialize after the flood 
They had to work through magicians. They had to work through, through various uh, 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 individuals. But then there was a point where they said, well, we can't materialize. Let's possess someone. We'll have a body at least. But uh, we can, and possibly it became a, a, a sort of a, a substitute for materialization, but it doesn't work out too well because I think there's conflict in the body. I think they just go mad and they probably can't do everything they'd want to do with the body. But the main point and the difference between the gospel age and the Jewish age is that there was, in the Jewish age, we do not see reports of spirit possession. Well, we see a lot of spirit activity, but in the, uh, but in the Jewish age, I mean, not gospel age, I'm sorry. In the, uh, uh, yeah, in the, in the gospel age, you, you start to see spirit possession and you see the Lord exercising uh, these demons. Okay, now Brother Harry's brought out a thought I've never, never considered in my life, but I can't think of an objection to it. But just, just to rehash this and the others can react to it, he is suggesting that in the Jewish age, they worked through people who were called necromancers, mediums, witches, wizards, soothsayers, magicians, etc. But that starting about Jesus' time, they worked not just through them, but in them by method of possession. Brother Stevens. Well, it's, <clears throat> it's interesting. Harry and I have not talked about this, but I kind of came up with the same conclusion in looking at how these are used in the Old and New Testament. Uh, in fact, in the Old Testament, uh, when you go to the law, there are specific uh, mention and punishment given for those who try to communicate with the dead, such as you know the witches and the necromancers and the you know uh, whatever. Uh, nothing mentioned at all in the law that I could find about how to deal with those who had evil spirits. Uh, I couldn't find anything uh, on that, or those who are possessed rather of, of evil spirits. Uh, but yet, as Brother Harry said, when you get to the New Testament, almost immediately we see Jesus encountering numerous situations where different ones were obviously possessed of demons or evil spirits, and he deals with those in a very uh, severe way. So there does seem to be some, uh, uh, you know, difference. And, you know, obviously Satan and the fallen angels are very opportunistic. Uh, they would take advantage of whatever seems to be the easiest way to enter into the lives of, of fallen man. And uh, perhaps uh, over time, or as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament times, those ways, the opportunities presented themselves in a little different way for the angels to do this. Uh, we do believe uh, uh, as to some of the restraints that were put on these spirits after the flood. Uh, Peter says that they were cast down to hell or to Tartaru, uh, which we believe is the atmosphere of the earth. And uh, they were put in chains, and we, we believe that that's, uh, I believe that that was meant that they were not allowed then to materialize into a human form. And that's why, really, they went to these other methods of, of uh, uh, being used through mediums and witches and so forth, and then later on, actually possessing uh, humans, uh, possession uh, in human beings as devils and so forth. So, um, uh, so that's, that's what I would have on that. Thank you. Carl? I guess like you, I never really thought of the point that Harry raised there is it. And I certainly think the point is well-grounded when it comes to contrasting the Jewish age with the period of the Lord's first advent. 
I think that we can say there's very good evidence related to this truth. I don't know what evidence we have for the gospel age as a whole. Uh, there is obviously some place, some misdiagnosis. Uh, that which they were always called in possessions at the first advent, in most cases today would be called uh, insanity, and we're given uh, various types of name of uh, schizophrenia or whatever. And that which is today called schizophrenia and insanity, they might have often called even possession, uh, which is right. Probably there's a certain measure of each. Probably there was both in existence then, and the science had not developed to show what was actual a brain-related situation and not a demon-related. But that there was demon possession. In fact, the fact that Jesus cast them out implies that it was true. That it was there. And I would assume the thing is true today. Uh, a scripture I'm sure we're going to get to in your fifth period discussion is in Thessalonians, where it talks about the Lord's return to be accompanied with great marvels and workings of things. It implies to be an increased activity. I would think including lines of demon possession. Uh, certainly there have been degrees of evil at all times that it's hard to attribute just plain human oriness. Uh, and that is not limited to our time. I mean, today we can point to Hitler and his Holocaust. I can point back to Caligula. And I can point back to the Roman Empire. I can back to, point back to some of the Old Testament days where you've got equal people of equal ill will. Certainly not people that I wouldn't care to be associated with. Yeah, one, one observation I've had. When uh, we go into the gospel age and we see the demons being cast out, I get the impression there is a greater activity among the demons possessing human beings when the Lord is pre was here in his first advent. And I get the same impression at the second advent. I, I think there may also, we're, we're encountering, it's under different names and different guys, and I believe schizophrenia exists, and I believe uh, there are uh, simply biological, chemical reasons for some of this. But nevertheless, I think at both times of the Lord's presence, his first presence and the second advent, you have activity of demons. And the demons are almost pointing for us to the fact that the Lord is present because of their activities uh, in individuals. So to my mind, uh, the first advent and the second are very, one, they both accompany the same thing. Now we don't, and, and if you go over the, out to the internet, you'll see the landscape is awash with occultism today, paganism today. Also, you'll see, too, but I don't want to run ahead in, in our subject, but nevertheless, I do think demon possession particularly accompanies the advent of our Lord at the first and second advent. Now they had, they had in the Catholic Church those who exercised, cast out exercises and the demons, but the greatest activity is now. And, uh, and, I, and I, I suspect that's significant. All right, uh, just for time's sake, I want to bring up one point and then go to our next item. It is possible that even though we can say certain diseases of the mind are chemical and can be shown to be chemical, that doesn't mean that the chemical problem is not demon-manipulated. And let me give you a scripture for that. It's in Luke 10. I've always found it to be rather interesting. 
Jesus speaking to the seventy that he had sent out. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So it's blaming the poisonness, which is chemical, of serpents and scorpions on the devil. Now I suspect serpents were created by good angels, but they didn't end up very good. And it's very possible that bad angels manipulated the chemical element, just as they can manipulate chemicals in human minds, and use this as a source of possession by chemical manipulation. So much for that. Let's go on. Next item. Uh, I, I wrote in my little outline to the panel that I had changed my mind on this question, and I hope we all agreed, and I found out subsequently we don't, which is fine because it will give you something to chew on. Uh, before I ever gave much consideration to the matter, I had this vague concept in my mind that the demons were going to be destroyed there in the little season with the devil himself. I do not hold that view now. I think the demons are destroyed at the beginning of, well, so somewhere around the dotted line there, the end of the harvest of the gospel age. Uh, some on the panel share that view, some on the panel do not share that view. So here's our question. What do we understand from Scripture to be the time of the judgment of the fallen angels. When will they be destroyed if they fail this judgment? Who would like to be first? Uh, I think Carl had it by a hair there. <laughs> and he's an opposing view, so that should be a good place to start. Then we can all gang up on him. <laughs> in fact, even opposing in the myth that you, you mentioned your own view, I for years have thought, what you think now, and after careful study, you changed the opposite. I'll just suggest some scriptures which, in my mind, imply, and I think quite strongly imply, uh, that the final judgment of the fallen angels is in the little season. Uh, Matthew 25:41, where he says, "Speaking of the parable of the sheep and the goats, not of fallen angels at all, but a parable which, as far as I know, all Bibles has applied to the future, not to the present." The judge of the sheep and the goats, he said, of the goats, that they were cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, the whole text of that, to my mind, says this fire is prepared for future devil and his angels. It may be suggested it was prepared and already used for the devil and his angels, and now it's being reused. That possibility exists. But the wording, that becomes a strange interpretive, the straightforward wording is it is prepared for that activity. Secondly, in 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28, he mentions that he shall arrange you put down all a power and all authority. And the same word that is translated authority there, power, is translated in many scriptures, uh, especially in Ephesians, uh, of the fallen angels. It's translated there in Ephesians 1, 21, Ephesians 6, 12, Romans 8, 38, Colossians 1, 16, a number of scriptures. There, there's a, a lot of scriptures that translate this word principalities or powers. It's the same word translated authorities here. So that, to my mind, suggests that he puts it down when he puts enemies under his feet, which is at the time of his mediatorial reign and on into the season. Then there's a scripture in Isaiah, the 24th chapter, 
verses 19 to 22, that to my mind is quite strong, almost says as much. Uh, if I read the scripture correctly, and can correct my reading of the scripture, but Isaiah 24, and you want to go fast, your fingers go slow. Uh, Isaiah 24, 19 to 22. The earth is utterly broken down, the earth is clean dissolved, the earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro as a drunkard that shall be revealed like in a cottage, and the transgression there shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of high ones, which I would assume are the fallen angels, that are on high, and the kings of the earth as a separate group, and they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, or with Satan is bound. And then they shall be shut up in the prison, but after many days they shall be again visited. Implies that he's going to again visit, and that word is often used to deliver or to bring forth. He will again come to them and bring them forth. Finally, in Isaiah 6, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, we're told, Know ye not that ye shall judge men and angels. And the context there is not a judgment, by your activity being good and there's a human being bad, but of making a judicial decision. Are you not able to judge matters between yourself? Are you not able to decide between yourself? So he's talking judgment in the standpoint of making an executive decision. And he says, in that sense, know ye not that men shall judge men and angels. I don't think that we are currently in a judgmental position today. I think the judgmental position is a future position. And it's during that position when, with Christ, Unto him is committed all judgment in heaven and earth. So these evidences are evidences to me that point to the other direction, David. I'm glad to see them broken down. I'm glad to see the discussion. Who's next? Brother Stephen. Just a comment first about their judgment. I, I think we can make a little bit of a distinction between judgment and destruction uh, from the standpoint that I think their judgment, uh, in a certain sense, has been a process that has been going on. Uh, ever since they fell or were cast down from their uh, first estate, cast down to the atmosphere of the earth. Uh, and I think the scriptures uh, bring this out. Remember in First Peter, the third chapter, it ta Peter talks about uh, Jesus when he also preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient. Uh, and I think what that is saying is that, you know, even when our Lord came at his first advent, uh, there, was, there was kind of a, a silent preaching to those uh, spirits uh, that, you know, if they had a heart uh, that was in any way repentant, might have caused them to uh, change from their uh, former condition of disobedience, and uh, uh, and it was a great witness to them. Second uh, Peter 2, verse 4, says that they're reserved unto judgment, and the word reserved means to, uh, basically, to keep an eye on, uh, and I think it means that God has been keeping an eye on these these fallen spirits or these fallen angels to see whether or not there has been any form of repentance in them. And if there has, perhaps there is a, an opportunity for them to be restored to, to their former condition. And if there hasn't, then at the point when their final judgment would come, then they would not be deemed worthy of, of uh, having any restoration and would be destroyed. Whether that destruction is in Armageddon or whether it's at the end of uh, the kingdom, I'm going to borrow Brother Nakora's statement this morning, I don't know. 
Uh, I can see some scriptures that kind of lean one direction or the other. Now, Carl's pointed out some that lean in the direction that it's uh, at the end of the uh, uh, kingdom or during the little season, or at the end of the little season. Uh, one scripture that might tend to, uh, for us to think it's in Armageddon, is in Revelation, the 16th chapter, where, uh, and this was part of this was quoted earlier uh, in the 14th verse of Revelation 16, it's talking about these evil spirits. It says, For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. It's talking about the, the final features of the time of trouble and Armageddon, which is mentioned two verses later in the 16th verse. It talks about gathering them to Armageddon. And then in the 17th verse, it says, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. The air is the... Seemingly could be uh, associated with the atmosphere of the earth, where these fallen angels have been dwelling since they were cast down from their habitation. Uh, the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great noise out of the temple of heaven, saying, It is done. Uh, what this phrase, it is done, could be interpreted to mean that part of this pouring out of the vial into the air, this was the last vial, the seventh vial, might be uh, explained as, among other things, as the destruction of these fallen angels, together with the final binding of Satan himself. And another point is that when we get over to Revelation, the 20th chapter, which talks about the binding of Satan, there is no mention of the binding of his angels. And if they are to continue to live through the kingdom and into the little season, we might expect to see something mentioned about their being bound or further restrained from uh, their position now in the atmosphere of the earth and being able to possess the minds of human beings. So those are just some thoughts, but I, I really have not come to a definite conclusion myself. Good. Good to have somebody in the middle. <laughs> well, I'm not exactly in the middle, but I'm about three quarters over. <laughs> when you get here, I'm all the way. <laughs> but very <laughs> progressive. <laughs> but in any event, uh, there, there are, the one thing, of course, it depends on where you believe the judgment is going to be at the end of the millennial age. If you believe the judgment is going to be before he turns it over to the Father, then it's possible the church will judge the angels then. If you believe the judgment is going to be at the end of the millennial age, and he turns it over to the Father after the end, the church is not involved in that judgment, only the Father. So it depends on where you're going to put it. I happen to put it after the millennium, and when he turns it over to the Father, and this says, as we are told, know ye not, ye will judge men and angels. So if you're in the church, and the judgment is turned over to the Father, well, you're not going to be judging angels, because you can reason. Well, we're judging them in that through our life. They're watching us, how we live, how we behave, and uh, so on. We could, we could use that sort of reasoning as they same reasoning can be used with one of our Lord's first advent. I don't subscribe to that. Uh, so it, uh, also, this is rather vague, but, uh, and by the way, I think your points are good. They're really good points. They're worth thinking about, and that's why I'm about three quarters on this thing. And not, uh, uh, I don't know if you get out of this what I do. Um, and that is in First uh, Peter 3.20. With some time we were disobedient when, uh, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was be preparing, wherein uh, few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. 
This was a judgment period. As a result, God was very patient. He waited through this whole age, through all this evil, and he brings the flood. And with the flood comes a judgment upon the angels. And they're put into chains of darkness. That's the end of an age. Now we're coming an end to another age. Uh, I don't imagine they're going to have three judgments. And I suspect it's at the end of this age that they are going to be judged. You know, you're right. The, uh, the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And, and also where, where the Lord cast these, uh, uh, we, uh, we are legion, for we are many, and cast these. And he said, if you come to judge us and to cast us, as some translations, into the deep or into the bottomless pit, which I think it is. So I agree with you. I mean, clearly, they're all going to the same place. The question is, is it at the same time? And if we believe the judgment of the millennial day, it comes after the millennium, then I would say, no, the church is not making that judgment. But if we believe the judgment comes at the, uh, in our time, and, we, and if loosing of the four winds and, uh, uh, is, it might be an indication of and giving the, finally these demons uh, one more chance to demonstrate uh, their characters, then I'd say now. I, I would lean more towards the, the, the judgment is at the end of this age. All right. Uh, you need a whole discourse to go through this, by all means. Uh, Carl's strongest text, I thought, was the Isaiah 24. However, it's also the most intricate and symbolic, so it's very subject to argument. Uh, I would use all the other texts that Carl used, you see, <laughs> but with a totally different concept involved in them. For instance, in, in Jude 6, uh, they are reserved in chains unto judgment of the great day. The implication is extremely strong that as soon as the chains are removed, they are under judgment. Now, the chains aren't going to be removed at the end of the millennium. They're removed now in the harvest period. So the suggestion that when the saints judge the angels seems to be now. And there's an awful lot of saints up there to do it. I'm not saying we're doing it. But there's an awful lot of saints on the other side of the veil that are doing it. When you take a look at Matthew 25, the parable, uh, the uh, fire reserved for the devil and his angels, Brother Russell in reprint 4292 says that those angels are not the fallen angels. He says they are the followers of Satan at the end of the age. Very consistent because in Matthew 24, which is the same sermon by Jesus, he has angels too. Satan not only has angels, but Jesus does. And who are they? They're the church the ones that are following him. And so it's very consistent that these are not the fallen angels, but the followers of Satan at the end of the age. And the first Corinthians, to me, if, if, if one of those three things that Jesus is putting down, even if you translate it uh, principalities like, like is done for fallen angels, you know what it says? He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. He's been reigning for 125 years. So there's no problem with his putting down that power now at the beginning of the age. He doesn't have to do it later in the age because the reign has already begun and that satisfies the definition of 1 Corinthians 15. You're here too early. I won't say any more. The rest of you, please tell us something that you expect um, that's going to happen before the dotted line. Carl. There's a quotation by the Russell I'd like to use here to serve in my closing remark. It covers a lot of things we talked about. 
first indirect answer to the question, but that's the one scripture already mentions that there's going to be increased activity. And so we know that there's going to be satanic activity, especially accompanying the Lord's return. And I think there's evidence of it more and more. I found it very interesting last week when the Pope tried a third exorcism, the middle of Vatican Square, and the devil laughed at him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I thought that the, uh, the headline they see for in Rome was very significant. The devil visited Vatican Square this week. <laughs> I think he did before, but anyway. <laughs> I, I thought that was a very interesting headline. But I like a quotation when it comes to what we know and what we don't know. That Brother Rusty uses in the discussion the reference regarding divine healing, which is one of the evidences I think of spirit often roaming. He said, while we must be careful, and I'm quoting, while we must be careful not to call everything miraculous as being of God, we must also be careful not to attribute to Satan that which may be good and may be of God. So I think we must always say, this appears to be. Uh, because there are things that can be of God. I think Brother Russell great wisdom in his writing that statement. Thank you. Brother Stephen. <clears throat> I was thinking about two main things have been happening during this harvest period in God's plan, among lots of other things, but two primary things. Number one, the completing of his church, and number two, the dissolving of this present evil order of things. And Satan and his angels know this is going on. And so I think their efforts to stall this is directed in those two primary areas. Number one, against the church from being complete, trying in some way to deceive and, and prevent the church from, from uh, having its completion. And number two, to try and save this present evil order. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's lots of things that we, could, that we could talk about within those two objectives that Satan and his angels are trying to do. Uh, you know, as far as the world is concerned, Satan would much rather have the order that he had 300 years ago in this present world. What he sees going on around him, uh, around us in this world today, is not what Satan wants. He doesn't like to see this crumbling, this tendency toward anarchy. He would much rather have order in his terms uh, as he had it during the height of, of papacy. So uh, what I think that leads me to say is that I think we would expect Satan and his angels to appear or their works to appear much more subtly both to the world and to us as angels of light. Uh, I think, you know, just one example of this, and again, we, we perceive this, we can't say this is attributable to Satan and his angels, but it's, it certainly appears that way sometimes, and that is the world's fascination with angels themselves. Angels have, they're, they're everywhere. They're in the bookstore, they're on television, they're in the movies, they're in the newspaper, and people now say they talk with their angels and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and these are not the ignorant people of the world. These are the so-called religious people of the world. And, you know, just imagine how subtle this might be if Satan and his angels have something to do with this. Uh, again, we can't say for sure, but it's, uh, you know, it's mighty suspicious. And I think, you know, we have to be careful. We know the holy angels are, are there for our benefit. There are ministering spirits, but we don't communicate with them. We don't set them up as idols or anything like that. Uh, our communication is with God through his son. So there's a, you know, there's a, a warning there to us that we don't get caught up in all this uh, in this particular time. 
And just one other point is that I think, and this Ken, Brother Ken mentioned this, I think, in his talk this morning, doctrine itself, uh, the, the fundamental doctrines of truth, the Satan and his angels would love to infiltrate the Bible students and have us leave some of these principles of doctrine and belief that we have had uh, for generations. And we see he's had some limited success in this, where some have almost gone back to nominalism in their, in their views. So uh, I think, uh, again, we can't say 100% that any of this is attributable to Satan and his angels, but they would certainly be in favor of it because they think that it's prolonging their existence. Well, I concur with all of the above. I do, you know, Brother Russell ran, really ran the gauntlet on what to expect from, Air, from Mary Baker Eddy to Christ, or false Christ coming in the clouds. So I do think so. And I, I agree that I think it, it says that the very elect would be deceived as possible. So it, it's, I don't think it's going to be a flying saucer that's going to land on the White House lawn that's going to deceive the very elect. I think we recognize what these things will be. Though nevertheless, I mean, we are, what is really happening uh, to a great extent uh, when people are start talking about out-of-body experiences, which is very common, the worship of, of angels uh, uh, today, which is very common. You know, we're seeing this, as the point is very well taken. And, but it's certainly making the truth less, less receptible because they have, uh, they have evidence now. They think they have absolute facts. And, and it's really very, very difficult. And I think it's going to be somewhat subtle, maybe at the very end. Satan certainly let the Pope down. He didn't do anything for him, which is rather interesting, you know, because, I mean, this is supposedly the seat of Satan, of Vatican, and, and, uh, and the Pope is up his old tricks. Uh, people who, it's really interesting.